You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing. In this show, I cut through the hype and hand-wringing to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. On October 29, 2018, Lion Air Flight 610 took off from Jakarta and crashed into the Java Sea, killing all 189 passengers and crew aboard. Less than five months later, on March 10, 2019, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 crashed over the countryside, killing everyone on board. What a grim opening for this episode, but stick with me. As the world now knows, both planes were Boeing 737 MAX jets, a new model that had become the fastest selling plane ever. In between the crashes, Boeing said this, as our customers and their passengers continue to fly the 737 MAX to hundreds of destinations around the world every day, they have our assurance that the 737 MAX is as safe as any airplane that has ever flown the skies. But it would turn out that Boeing allegedly knew there was a problem with a key sensor back in 2017, long before the crashes. And there's more to the story. With the MAX's grounding in March, Boeing has now had two airplanes taken out of the sky by the Federal Aviation Administration in six years following battery fires on its Dreamliner in 2013. The last model the FAA grounded was the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 back in 1979. Now, Boeing is facing congressional scrutiny, lawsuits, and public fury in spades. At the company's annual meeting in Chicago in April, family members of crash victims stood outside in a driving rain, holding up photos of loved ones and signs reading, 
prosecute Boeing and execs for manslaughter and Boeing's arrogance kills. How could this happen to Boeing, which was supposed to represent everything that was best about American manufacturing? Bloomberg writer Peter Robeson conducted more than a dozen interviews with former employees and FAA inspectors and went through hundreds of pages of internal emails and records. In a piece entitled, Former Boeing Engineers Say Relentless Cost-Cutting Sacrifice Safety, he writes this, the crisis is best understood as part of a larger drama that's played out as Boeing has reshaped its workforce in an all-consuming focus on shareholder value. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Theoretically, the company that makes the best, safest product wins. Competition should engender a race to the top, not a race to the bottom. Good business practices and good profits should go hand in hand. Hell, forget the theory. We have actual proof that this is the way it works. There are famous examples from business history. Who can forget Paul O'Neill, who as Alcoa's newly minted CEO, gave a speech to the Wall Street investment community in 1987, in which he spoke not about profits and cost-cutting, but rather about worker safety. He said his goal in the company was to reach zero injuries. When an analyst asked him about company inventories, O'Neill replied, I'm not certain you heard me. If you want to understand how Alcoa is doing, you need to look at our workplace safety figures. By the time O'Neill retired in 2000, Alcoa's market cap had grown 900% and worker injuries had dropped to a minuscule level. Has something changed? Today, so many companies operate in an environment of fear. Fear that they'll be taken over if earnings sag or if they lose ground to a competitor. Fear that an activist investor will oust management, thereby ending their rich paychecks. In that pressured environment, what gets sacrificed on the altar of more profits now? If this could happen to Boeing, what's the lesson for other companies? I'm thrilled to have Peter here with me from Seattle. After starting on the Boeing beat in 1998 and then leaving that beat and then coming back to it, what was your reaction to how the company had changed? I suppose it was surprise, mostly because the background chatter and grumbling that I'd been hearing 20 years ago from engineers about how Boeing was moving away from an engineering focus and was only worried about shareholder return seemed to be coming true. And and usually that kind of grumbling remains grumbling among employees, and it doesn't have what seems to be such drastic effects. And according to the engineers I talked to for this story, it's, it's the culmination of years of, of cost-cutting that was aimed at increasing Boeing's profitability. So you started to hear this grumbling 20 years ago? Yeah, Boeing had bought McDonnell Douglas, and at that time, there was a real diversion in the culture between the two companies. M- McDonnell Douglas, I've, I've heard described as as sort of hunter-killer assassins of business, and, and the Boeing people at that time were described as Boy Scouts. And Boeing had always been a, a very engineer-dominated company. Many of its CEOs had been engineers. But McDonnell Douglas, under Harry Stonecipher, was very interested in shareholder return. And part of the way that they tried to do that was by outsourcing a lot of the technology and expertise to other companies to keep their own costs down. And that tension was just starting to play out when I started covering Boeing back in 98. That's so interesting that the seeds of this could have been planted so long ago. How was it, do you think, that the acquired company's culture ended up becoming the dominant one? How does that happen? I think part of the answer is in the style of Phil Condit, who was the CEO at that time. He talked about trying to merge the two companies. The story he told at the time was that he, he drew two boxes on a paper and put himself in one and Harry Stonecipher in the other. And he said they would work as a team. As it 
turned out, according to people I talked to, what happened because the McDonnell Douglas executives were were more aggressive and were more used to the the sort of corporate infighting is that the McDonnell Douglas style became ascendant. And within a few years, Harry Stonecipher was running the company. Do you think it also, what played out at Boeing tells a larger story of changes in the business world too? In other words, that grumbling that started 20 years ago, if our business world hadn't remained and become increasingly relentlessly focused on shareholder value, maybe it would have played out differently. Does it tell a larger story of how the business climate overall has changed? I think it does because what happened at Boeing is is very similar to what happened at other companies which are manufacturing based. They they shifted production overseas and did whatever they could to reduce costs. In Boeing's case that happened in some cases but you didn't see the effects for much longer because it takes so much longer to develop planes but you know the people that I talked to find it interesting that the all new planes that have been or the, or the new models that have come out since Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas are the 787 Dreamliner and the 737 Max, both of which have been grounded by the FAA. And that had not happened to Boeing before. So let's let's back up to the specifics of your story. You begin the story with this anecdote about level D training. Why did you choose that? And what larger picture does does that tell? It sounds arcane and technical, but it's important because Level D training signifies a kind of training that the FAA requires that means any pilots flying this new model have to undergo simulator training. Simulator training is expensive for airlines. It's also disruptive. They have to run many hundreds or even thousands of pilots through this training, so it disrupts their flight schedules. And so Boeing at the time was trying to catch up with Airbus, which had a competing model that was running about a year ahead in the planning to Boeing's. And so according to Rick Ludke, who's been one of the more outspoken former Boeing engineers, managers from the start said, you know, whatever designs you come up with, they cannot require level D training, which means no simulator training. So that's what they did. And and according to him, it, it may have led to some shortcuts in the design. And ultimately, it led to pilots getting about an hour of training on an iPad instead of undergoing a full simulator training on this new model. That's shocking. An hour of training on an iPad? Yeah. It used to be that pilots would carry their flight manuals around in those square suitcases that you would see them rolling in airports, but they've shifted all of their training onto iPads. But still an hour of training. It's really interesting, the picture that paints. Your story begins with one of those perfect anecdotes that really does sum up this much larger issue. So what role did the, the fierce competition with Airbus play? I mean, theoretically, you think of competition as this thing that should make everybody do better, right? But it appears to have been a more destructive force in this in this case. Is that fair? It may have been it, just because Airbus had an advantage in that its A320 is about 25 years newer. And so the the newer models of the Airbus A320 had a more seamless similarity to the previous models. And also they use electrical controls. The 737 had originally been fly-by-wire, which means hy- hydraulically controlled. So it, it's an older plane that Boeing is sort of jury-rigging electrical control into to try to make it have modern handling. And according to the people I talked to, it ended up with this jury-rigged system that was confusing to pilots ultimately. And why did competition have this negative impact instead of being a positive one? Is it simply that in today's world, Boeing just couldn't risk losing to Airbus for even a short period of time that it would that it would have taken to make a truly better plane? 
Yeah, I, th I think the the thing that both of them try to do with th these models are very high volume, and they're the highest source of income for for the companies, and they need to keep their assembly lines full. And if Boeing had let Airbus get ahead of it with the A320, I think the thing the thing that surprised them the most was that American Airlines had said that it planned to order the A320. American is a, a bedrock customer of Boeing's, and only 20 years ago, American had said that it wouldn't it would order only Boeing planes for 20 years. Airbus saying that they wanted to switch to the A320 was a critical moment for Boeing, and at that point, they launched the 737 Max, which they hadn't been planning on doing for several more years. I have this thing that business stories are always stories about people. So let's let's start with Dennis Mullenberg. Who who is he? Dennis Mullenberg grew up in Iowa on a farm. He tells a story frequently about having gone to college at Iowa State and wanting to grow up to become the world's best airplane designer. And he had an internship at Boeing in Seattle. And uh, it was the first time he'd been there for the summer. This is in the mid-80s. And after he graduated, he started at Boeing and he remained at Boeing. He's a, he's a lifer. He's been there 30, 30 plus years. So among the engineers, there, there's a sense that he is one of them, although at the same time, there's been a lot of disappointment in his public statements because he seems to hew to these legalistic formulations that seem partly designed to prevent liability for Boeing. And he seems to struggle with connecting emotionally. I had someone early on say it sounded like Boeing's statements were written by a lawyer and an engineer which is not surprising because they were. So Mullenberg, I, I also find interesting because it seems like the kind of crisis that might push out a CEO. But at this point, the shares are, are hanging pretty tough. And partly that's because it is a duopoly. And ultimately, airlines may not have much choice, at least until new entrants in China enter the market. I want to come back to that because that's that's a truly frightening point. You also write about Mullenberg that he's somebody, despite his engineering background, he's somebody who also pushed for cost cutting, right? He is. But before this story in Business Week, we wrote another story a year ago at a time when Boeing was riding about as high as it ever had, at least in the time that I've been covering it. It had seen its shares triple in the space of a few years. And was really taking over the mantle from GE as, you know, the America's industrial champion. And partly that was because Mullenberg had followed his predecessor, Jim McNerney, who's a former GE executive, in ah, pu pushing course. for cost cuts, pushing suppliers to reduce their prices. They, they had a program called Partnering for Success, which the suppliers grumbled was called Pilfering from Suppliers. So that's part of the backdrop here is that Boeing has, and, and Airbus have been pushing the system for lower prices and cost cuts for, for years and years. So is GE going all the way back to Jack Welch? Is GE the source of all evil? I mean, I'm kidding. But some, <laughs> some of this relentless focus on earnings traces its way back to Jack Welch, right, in the GE culture? Yeah, it's definitely an element of, of it here. I, one issue is, is that Boeing... Boeing's incentives have pushed it to re reduce its cost of capital. The top executives are compensated based on a measure that penalizes them for the cost of capital. So they have more incentive to outsource work. They have more incentive to return cash to shareholders, which which they've done. And shareholders have 
profited handsomely as have the the top executives. I, we had a, a stat that the that Mullenberg and McNerney, his predecessor, just since 2012, have taken in 200 million plus in bonuses and stock awards. And do you think it's as simple as greed that makes people conform or, or push such, such metrics, or is there a fear component too? And that if they don't deliver, shareholders will find somebody else who will. I think it's more the f- the fear component. It's that there, there's a moment that I described in the story where the top executives at Boeing were really fearful that they would be taken over or pushed out in, in some fashion. At a meeting in 98, Phil Condit called his top managers together and said that stock price was so depressed that Boeing could be taken over, which seems unthinkable. But at the time, its its price was only 30 bucks or so, and, and now it's 300 and 50 or so. Right. And in today's era of activist investing and private equity, it's actually not unthinkable, right? Exactly. I always think this is interesting because there's a component of reality to that fear, right? It's not just a desire for executives to put more money in their pocket or focus on, on shareholder value. There's a real element of, of self-preservation at work, too. Exactly. Exactly. It's It's the entire construct which requires these companies to produce higher earnings and returns for shareholders, no, no matter what the circumstances are. So one of the really compelling quotes, there was there were a lot of them, but in your story, it was the CFO saying all the way back in 2000, not to get overly focused on the box. And what she meant is that the plane itself was obviously important, but, but customers knew that. And so it was time to focus on other things. Did that strike you at the time? Or is it one of those quotes that in retrospect, you say, oh my God, that was a moment? It struck me at the time. I remember thinking that the customer focus should always be emphasized as as number one and safety should always be emphasized as number one in, in that type of business. And the message that the CFO at the time was trying to push was that it, it was a message to shareholders. It was that Boeing understands the, the need for profitability. And, and so that's where that quote was coming from. But at the time, I, I thought it could lead to problems pushed to its farthest limits. And you were hearing that grumbling all the way back then, which the quote is, the quote is part of, right? The engineers reacted strongly to that. Exactly. Part of the audience was also the engineers who, who were, were pushing back on, on the shareholder focus. So this is, there's the MAX 737, and then there's the Dreamliner. There's also this problem, too. The the New York Times wrote a piece, and I guess it is the factory that makes the Dreamliner, that this plant was supposed to be trumpeted as the -the state-of-the-art manufacturing hub. And that, too, has been plagued by shoddy production. Is that a part of this story as as well, that it isn't just the MAX? It isn't just the 737 MAX. The problems are, are much deeper. Yeah, and th- and that I think the the way to understand the problems at the plant in South Carolina that produces the Dreamliner is that that plant was established because Boeing was trying to control its unions. Boeing had felt that the unions had the upper hand because the especially the machinist union could could always shut down production if if they struck, which meant that the plant in Everett, which produced wide bodies couldn't produce and and so Boeing had to capitulate. So so Boeing as part of a strategy to increase its leverage against the the machinist union opened this new plant in South Carolina which analysts at the time were surprised by because they felt it would be difficult to replicate the aerospace workforce, the supply base that Boeing had in Washington. So and and that's exactly what's happened. There've been, you know, numerous documented problems with 
faulty parts and ending up on airplanes and quality inspections not catching them. I thought this quote in your story that McNerney jokes on this conference call with journalists when he's, he's getting ready to retire and he joked, the heart will still be beating, the employees will still be cowering. Yeah. That, and that was a, a striking quote at the time because it was in the middle of all this conflict with, with unions. And, and so, you know, the engineers I spoke with said that at, at the time, they actually, some, some people had signs on their desks showing a, a kind of a cowering middle manager. And it said, if, if I'm not here, I'm probably cowering. Oh, geez. That's, that's, that's not encouraging, is it? No, and that's just part of the backdrop. I mean, the, the people that I talked to, you know, described a, a really chilling, you know, environment. It was the kind of environment where uh, layoffs were happening at, at first voluntary and then involuntary. And so people didn't feel that they could speak up. And when I heard that from multiple people, it began to make more sense how a problem like the one on the Max could have developed, which seems to have been largely because of miscommunications and just sloppy mistakes, such as a, an alert that might have alerted the pilots to the fact that one of the angle of attack sensors was not working that was just not hooked up properly, which, which Boeing discovered a, a year before the first crash. Explain what that was and how that, how that played out, how that kind of miscommunication can become something that takes people's lives. The real problem, at least as pilots describe it, is that they did not even know that this automated software system was on the airplane, that this maneuvering characteristics augmentation system, which automatically began pushing the nose of the plane down when one sensor detected that the nose was going up too high. Unfortunately, it turned out that this sensor was, was faulty and the nose should not have been pushed down. And when the pilots tried to counterman that order, the software kept pushing the nose down, which was not what the FAA had, had certified, and it was not the intention of the software engineers at Boeing. And, and Boeing has you know, since announced a fix which would take information from both sensors and would you know, reduce the ability of the software to continue pushing the nose down even when the pilots try to countermand it. And, and it's really unusual after an accident to have such clear evidence of what happened in many cases accident investigations don't reach a firm conclusion for for years but in in this case we, we had two accidents within five months where investigators very quickly determined a critical error in the software it was crystal clear what the cause was but how does that happen i'm still unclear as to how that could happen how somebody couldn't have said we've we've got a problem here especially since they knew it before the crashes happened you're hitting on what investigators are still trying to determine who knew what, when. And so far, it seems that the errors were, there were honest mistakes made, or at least that's what people I've talked to assume, you know, barring other evidence. But it may come back to the fact that this was a compartmentalized design system where one hand didn't know what the other was, was doing. In other words, a mistake of this magnitude could happen through sheer sloppiness, not through deliberate wrongdoing or deliberate obfuscation. Exactly. There's this th lawsuit that was recently filed, and there's an exchange in the lawsuit where a pilot is heard saying in this conversation, we flat out deserve to know what is on our airplanes. And this unidentified Boeing official answers, I don't disagree. And then a pilot says, these guys didn't even know the damn system was on the airplane, referring to the Lion Air pilots in their crash, nor did anybody else. And the Boeing official says, I don't know that understanding this system would have changed the outcome of this. In a million miles, you're going to maybe fly this airplane, and maybe once you're going to see this 
whatever. So I, I wondered if from that there was this sense that, well, this was just a minor issue and something we could afford to overlook rather than something that was going to blow up into this reputation-destroying thing. Yeah, I think that quote was was given to the American Airlines pilots um, in November after the, the first crash of the Lion airplane. And he was saying, you, you won't see this again in a, a million miles. Well, it happened within 100,000 flights with, within uh, of the plane, you know, within five months. So that conclusion seems wrong. Yeah, it's a really interesting story about odds, right? That you can try to calculate the odds of something going wrong and say they're minimal, but that th- that can actually be an incredibly misleading way to think about things. Right. One of the uh, heroes of the Boeing engineering workforce is a manager named, well, Al Mulally, who went on to run Ford. He designed the 777 and had a a quote that he would often use, which is that the problem with communication is is the illusion that it happened. So he would try to manage his meetings and and airplanes with really over-communicating and trying to make sure that all sides understood what was happening. And it seems that Boeing went away from that. And that's another reason I, I led the story with that first anecdote, which shows that Boeing was trying to to limit what people knew. And according to one of the engineers involved, this was to, to save money, that it, that it would have been costly for airlines. And if they had been given all the information, if, and if there was a new software system that was introduced on the plane, and, and that, that may have triggered this additional training. And that's just the, that better communication would just be more costly, so therefore keep everything siloed. Exactly. After all these years of covering business, does your gut tell you that this is a case of sloppiness and miscommunication rather than something? I don't even know if it's arguably darker because sometimes sometimes incompetence is actually more frightening than malevolence, right? Yeah. One of my editors described this uh, early on as, as Boeing's challenger moment. And that's, you know, the famous case where it ended up being this one faulty O-ring seal that brought down the challenger. And it shouldn't have flown. And engineers were warning the day before that the seal couldn't stand up to the cold on the day that the shuttle flew. And so, you know, some of those engineers who tried to stop the Challenger from flying, you know, were were tormented by it for for years. You know, would talk thirty years later about how they they wish they could have changed their managers' minds about that. And that's why I'm really interested to see what the investigators turn up because that will turn up who said what, when, you know, there may be a a challenger moment that we don't know about. Did you hear some of that in your reporting, some feeling of maybe if I had been louder, I could have, I could have done this even from people who weren't necessarily central to that issue, but from the people who were warning that something was going wrong with the culture for years? I didn't hear that exact tone of contrition. It was more just how could this happen, you know, to, to, you know, Boeing, you know, this vaunted engineering company renowned for meticulous engineering, how could it happen? And it was, it was more just wanting to know the answers. And there was another scene that we described toward the end of the story where Dennis Mullenberg came to meet with the engineers in Seattle and it was an emotional meeting. It was introduced by the head of the commercial airplanes business, and at least one person was weeping. And then Mullenberg got up and answered five questions or so with, with these artfully vague responses that people have gotten used to. And this engineer told someone it, it was a nothing burger. So they, I, I think that 
people even within Boeing want to know how it happened. So there's this Forbes headline that asks really bluntly, can Boeing be safe and profitable? And it was a consultant who used software to search through Boeing's reports and Airbus's reports to see how many times each one used the word safe. And it turns out Boeing only had 17 words related to safe in its 154-page annual report. And Airbus's 324-page annual report has 155 words related to safe, which would ratio-wise suggest Airbus is thinking a little bit more about safety. And Boeing used two profit words for every safety word, while Airbus's ratio is one profit word for every safety word. Do you think language matters? And do you think safety and profitability are diametrically opposed or should they go together? I don't see how safety and profitability are diametrically opposed because if you produce the safest airplane ever, that's the one people are going to want to fly on. You would hope so, right? Back to something you'd said earlier. Why do you think it is that Boeing stock is holding up as well as it has? I mean, it's it's way off its peak, but yet it still is up this year despite these two horrific accidents and the first two groundings of planes by the FAA since 1979. How does how does that square? It's because it's ultimately a duopoly and and the only option that customers have is to go to Airbus, which has completely full assembly lines for several years. So unless further evidence emerges or unless there's another crash and investors are sticking with Boeing, sensing that it's going to find a way to to tough this out. And do you think that's true? Do you think Boeing will find a way to tough it out? I think it's a hundred year old plus company that has in credible brands and engineering knowledge still behind it. So it may, but there may be more surprises and and bruises along the way. The duopoly structure is really interesting and the protection that that affords a company, even one in as precariously seeming a place as Boeing is, right? And is it just that there's literally nobody else other than Boeing and Airbus and this business is so complicated and so has so much history to it that you can't have a a new competitor step up and and take one of their places? Yeah, that that is that is the case, and and that's probably the case for ten years or or more. You know, most most of the analysts I talk to are are just very skeptical about new competitors, including China, which has developed a plane of roughly similar size to the seven thirty seven and the eight three twenty, but but it's not considered a viable contender at, at least for a decade. But the interesting thing for Boeing is whether customers in Asia stick with it because Asia is so much of the market now, and Lion Air in Indonesia is so upset at Boeing for its handling of the crash and and really in 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 blaming the airline's maintenance at at first. So uh, Oh, did it, they do that? They blame nice. they blame the maintenance at first? They pointed uh, very pointedly at several cases where maintenance steps weren't followed and and Lion Air had not had a spotless maintenance record. So after the first crash, there there wasn't the scrutiny you saw after the second one because this narrative that maintenance may have been partly to blame or even more to blame was, was holding. Wow. Interesting act of corporate ducking of responsibility, right, to put it kindly. You could put it that way. <laughs> uh, so why are people skeptical about the Chinese plane and about the market share that might garner? Because you know, as you were saying, it is, it is such a complex product. It's it's millions of parts. It's the the most rigorous safety standards of any product in in the world, and it's a 
product that involves hundreds of suppliers. And they've, they, you know, everything's got to come together exactly right. And in addition to that, you know, even if you do make this plane perfectly, it, people are going to be reluctant to fly a brand new plane before there's a, a track record. And Boeing and Airbus have track records stretching back decades. And for all of Boeing's problems, China doesn't exactly have a great reputation for manufacturing precision either, right? No, no, exactly. You also write about Boeing's relationship with its regulator, the Federal Aviation Administration. I've long been fascinated by companies and their regulators. And there's some maybe not unique things about about that dynamic. But what surprised you the most in looking into Boeing's relationship with the FAA? This all happened after I was covering Boeing directly as a beat. And so I, I was surprised to see how much the regulatory system had, had changed. And it, it's a, a system called organization designation authorization. And in this system, it, it used to be that the FAA would, would have sort of direct managerial authority over the engineering workforce at Boeing that are responsible for the safety sign-offs. But back in 2009, under an initiative that started in the George W. Bush administration, the FAA began shifting that authority to the manufacturer. And people I talked with said that they noticed the change, that that once Boeing had more authority over the regulatory process, they started putting more junior engineers, you know, people that may have been more easily controllable you know, into these positions. Self-regulation is something that happens in many industries but it's relatively new in aerospace, at least in terms of this system. I I should say that self-regulation has happened since the FAA was born in 1960. The engineers have always had authority to certify the products, but there was much closer supervision before this new system came into place. What brought about this new system, this shift in 2009? Is that a story of cost as well? Yeah, that's a story of of lobbying, and and that's lobbying by the aerospace in, industry, which felt that this system was slow. They wanted to have the control to to keep projects moving along as as quickly as they felt was was warranted, and it it took longer when the FAA was involved in you know directly nominating and and approving individual engineers in in the process. I thought there was a stunning statistic in your story that the FAA says it would need 10,000 more employees and an additional 1.8 billion of taxpayer money each year to bring certification entirely in-house. That's Those are stunning numbers, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. It's something that Congress has gone along with because government is expensive. From where we sit today, where would you say Boeing is going to be in five years? Is this going to leave lasting scars or given this duopoly position, are they going to be able to, in effect, waltz away from this? They may be a more clear number two to Airbus in five years, because even if they are getting some orders for the 737 MAX, the A320 seems to have an advantage in the narrow-body planes that are a majority of the market. And I think the surveys are showing that a solid number up to half of flyers are saying they don't want to fly on the max for a year. So there may be a a sales overhang that Boeing finds hard to overcome. They may find it harder to make the profits they've been making. Would you get on a 737 max? I, I would after the FAA 
certifies it, <laughs> and if and and once international regulators certify it. So you'd need both, not just the FAA. You want right, international right. regulators to look at it too. <laughs> and do you hear anything from inside Boeing that the engineers think, well, maybe now we'll start being listened to? Do you think it will result in a cultural shift of any of any type inside Boeing? It really depends on how reflective the the company is. I hear from some people who think there may be a, sh- a shift. One encouraging thing is that. Before these crashes, Dennis Mullenberg was looking to bring more work in-house. So, so the avionics, the sort of cockpit electronics work, w- would have come back in-house. And, and maybe if it were in-house, you wouldn't have these problems. That was, that was partly profit-driven as well, because Boeing has been a little resentful of what it feels are higher profits that some of the suppliers are, are getting. But it's a somewhat encouraging sign that, that Mullenberg is an engineer, so you hope that he would, even if he's not saying it publicly, would have some grasp of what the issues are. So I'm going to be uncharacteristically happy and say that just maybe, maybe there'll be a silver lining to all of this terrible tragedy. I hope so. On that note, I hope so too. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It was fun. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Before talking to Peter, I saw the Boeing story as a terrible tragedy for the passengers and crew who were killed and for their families. Now I see it also as a tragic tale of a company that lost its way and lost its soul, and as a result had what Peter calls a challenger moment. Was it like the challenger, a result of sloppiness, bad communication, and in this case, too much focus on reducing costs? Or will it turn out to be something darker and more deliberate? Stay tuned. What we know for sure is the truth of that famous Warren Buffett quote. It takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. I bet Boeing wishes it could have done things differently. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Rosie Stouffer. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 
Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.